And welcome back to the Cairo London podcast. This week we're breaking free of the usual programming and we're talking golf. Well, I guess the usual programming is always about optimal performance, uh, be it through interviewing chiropractors and getting their take on it, or we've obviously talked a lot about cycling and rugby and gyms and Pilates and all sorts of things over the last few months. However, let's talk about golf. You're going to meet Ian Clark, my golf pro. Yep. Everyone needs a golf pro, don't they? Well, I don't play that much golf, but I do love getting the occasional lesson, and Ian is really geared up down on the A3 uh, New Molden World of Golf driving range with a load of kit to help you with your golf swing. And so today we're going to talk about his top tips to help you decrease your score. Uh, Then we're going to get into a pile of information about how your body may physically be limiting your performance. And we use Tiger Woods' back as an example. I dug out his x-rays that I found online. You won't be able to see those, but um, you'll be able to hear about his five lumbar disc surgeries that he's had. Uh, and also some just some actual tips as to different things you can work on to help your body be a bit more fluid in the golf swing. So I hope you enjoy this one. You may notice the soundtrack variation at the start, and I'd like to thank my 11-year-old daughter, Charlie McLean. Thank you for putting this together. It's amazing what they can do on GarageBand these days. Uh, anyway, without any more chat... Here we go with Ian Clark and golf. Mate, I haven't seen you for ages, but thank you for getting involved in this. And no problem at all. It's not like I've got a great deal else going on, Craig, to be honest. <laughs> Look, that is part of what I was doing with this as well, as I started interviewing all of my chiropractors because I got a few chiropractors. But then, uh, you know, part of it was actually trying to give back because chiropractors are still able to open through this time. And I know there's a lot of okay. people... They're sort of hurting uh, who cannot, and partly that was me saying, well, look, anyone who can't open, I'm going to try and push out to my community, um, you know, people who maybe need a little bit of help, you know. So I'd like to go into the sort of stuff you've been doing uh, during lockdown to sort of help serve your people. But, um, yeah, golf. It's all about golf today. Great. Makes a change for you, doesn't it? Gets you off the bike. (laughs) Yeah, you look back at some of this stuff I've been doing and it's a little bit one-eyed, to be honest. Um, so, yeah. Um, but anyway, look, mate, before we get going, do you have a drink of choice today? Oh, tea. You're going a cup of tea? Ah, I'm as English as it gets, isn't you're, it? You're a traditional Englishman? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's five past 11. Tea's fine. <laughs> Well, because uh, a lot of my people have been asking, what's my tea and my coffee of choice? And uh, what have you got in there? That we have negotiated a little um, oh, relationship with the Ground Coffee Society. All oh, right. Um, they, on their website, groundcoffeesociety.com, you can get all this stuff delivered. In fact, are you a coffee drinker? I, we, we, yes, very sort, very slightly. Not a connoisseur by any means. Well, look, maybe I need to introduce you. Do you have a, an espresso pod or not? No, I'm not that technically minded, Craig. Well, don't worry. I'm going to send you a bag of the Ground Coffee Society Caveman Espresso Blend, and you can just put it in your cafetiere or your aero. Fantastic. 
Thank you. Uh, give that a go. We'll <laughs> give it a try. <laughs> yeah, uh, very exciting. I think officially I've become an influencer of sort because I now have product. There you go. And that's, that's arrived, isn't it? Well, where, where else do you go from there? <laughs> uh, maybe have more than three listeners. <laughs> it's because you got me on. <laughs> you need to pick better guests. Cheers. Well, anyway, enjoy your cup of tea. Anyway, look, give us, uh, give us a bit of intro about you. Um, uh, as you said, I spend too much time cycling and not enough time golfing, but I have been in your tuition numerous times over the years, and I just love your setup that you've got down at the World of Golf and the, your approach to it. And uh, I would be definitely frequenting you more often if I ever played the game more than three or four times a year. Uh, yeah. But look, that's overdoing it for you, isn't it? <laughs> and, and the truth is, those three times a year are actually in the condensed of about five days, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, that trip to Scotland has now been kind of kiboshed a bit, really. So, uh, anyway, we can go into that. But look, um, I want to hear a little bit about you. Um, I want to sort of go into, and this is a nice little coming together of something I've been meaning to do with you from that first time I uh, sort of had some lessons from you. But that idea of bringing together your expertise as the golf pro and some of my expertise as a chiropractor and someone who understands the body and see if we can kind of like help others out there to improve their, their game um, go into a little bit of this, uh, you know, I know um, well, ages ago I did that Titleist Performance Institute thing, um, uh, which obviously explains a lot about the body and how the body works and different challenges the body has. Uh, and, um, yeah, we can, um, we can just investigate all that stuff. So tell us a little bit about you and how your journey so far to becoming the golf pro. Thank you. Um, I never wanted to be a golf pro. I always wanted to play football. I, should, I, I still think I might do. I'm still with, with my team's performance last night. I think I'm getting half a chance, I think. So So football was my first love. So I always wanted to be, be a footballer. But sadly, a, a lack of talent soon put pay to that. Um, my dad's a golfer, keen golfer. So he would often take himself out Sunday, you know, disappear and go and play golf. And I'd wonder where he'd gone and Eventually, let me caddy for him. So it was a, a real, and anyone who's listening who's in my sort of position has done this sort of apprenticeship. Dad lets you caddy, then you're allowed to maybe hit a few shots in the round where nobody's watching. Then you can play a couple of holes, and eventually you beat him and he stops taking you out. So that's pretty much how it sort of, sort of works. And just really got addicted to the game. Again, I think anyone who's uh, in, in golf like we are it's, it's, it's a passion for it it's not a job at all you, you've got to have a passion for it you're, you're in a similar thing with funny working hours and that kind of thing you, you've got to love what you do and I think that starts really early on when you know your summer holidays are three rounds of golf in a day you go back to school after the summer holidays one glove which has had one hand which has had the glove on is pale white and this one's got a real brown suntan and that first day back at school everyone looks at you kind of funny like you've got some kind of skin condition but it's just that, I don't know, passion for playing the game, wanting to play, and then it keeps growing and growing. And then from there, when I realised I couldn't play for Liverpool anymore, um, and then you want to win the Open. <laughs> Who doesn't want to win the Open? Um, and again, another lack of talent for pay to that one. So <laughs> um, I left school at about 16, and uh, with, within a week I was the 
I called myself the assistant professional at the local golf club. Actually, I was just slightly above the club dog, was, was where I was in the food chain. So um, I was, what was I? Crikey, yeah, 16 years old. I, I was earning 30 pounds a week. I got paid every Friday evening. It was a, a fine moment in my life when I got these three 10 pound notes put in my hand. And that was for six days a week, 12 hours a day. And again, it's a very standard kind of apprenticeship you would have if that's where you wanted to go. And the best part of it is I got to practice for an hour every day. So there's me at 16, left school a week ago. Now I'm getting paid to practice. That's that's as good as it gets right there. <laughs> it's the dream. Oh, it was great. I'd go there and, you know, you practice for an hour. I'm getting paid to practice. Surely this is this is what you wanted to do. And just kept playing, played as much as I could. Um, I, I was PGA qualified in 1994. Um and then within about six months of qualifying, I then took up a teaching position out in Dubai, which is really where my passion for coaching started. I was, what was I, 21, 22 years old. And it was at that time where people were sort of developing their playing careers and, and really getting into playing, whereas mine really branched down the coaching road, um, full-time teaching in Dubai. Obviously, Dubai then isn't as Dubai is now. It's more like a little village in comparison to what it's, what it's like today. So... For me, getting that experience of coaching such diverse golfers, brand new golfers, never even seen a golf club or a golf course before. That was great. So that was a great sort of, uh, again, apprenticeship into, into coaching. And then came back here in 99 to where I am now, the, uh, working at the World of Golf. I often joke, well, we've been there 21, 22 years. No, nowhere else will have me. So uh, it's a good job somewhere does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been there 20 years. That is so good. Uh, I know. Long time, isn't it? I guess, but uh, like you must look at it and go, well, you know, I've got a great little setup there. I've got all the equipment I need in that, that your domain that you have at the top top tier there. And yeah. uh, you've got probably an endless source of people coming in looking for lessons in theory. Definitely. I'm, I'm really lucky. Um, the owners of the driving range are very accommodating. They're, they're really sort of supportive of what I want to do. And I've got a great nucleus of students as well, having been there so long. I'm obviously not very good because they keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I have sort of a, a great group of students who like to come in and see me. And we do some work, as, you, as you've been in, and we do some work on TrackMan and on the body track mat. And we get the high-speed video going and all the, all the bits and bobs. So, yeah, it's, for someone who teaches full-time, it's, it's a good place to work. People often say, well, don't you want to work somewhere else? Well, no, for what I do, it's ideal. Lots of golfers and... I'm well looked after by the owners of the driving range. Because I guess the more traditional way of doing it is like being at a club, right, and being the sort of local pro. But there's always limitations with that, I guess, isn't there, where you have to maybe run the shop as well as the, you know, the, sure. the facility. Yeah, that's, that. yeah that's, definitely. Sorry, that's a, that's a lot of uh, – you, you're doing a lot of juggling with that job. I don't think I'd be any good at that. They um, – when I, when I worked in the shop before, I, I mean, the whole sweater folding thing, I was dreadful. They would, they would send me out to just pick up the balls off the driving range. I was more used to doing that. I couldn't. My hoovering skills were poor and my folding skills were poor. But the, the guys at golf clubs, the head professional at a club, you know, they've got to be really almost like a chameleon. You know, you've got to keep the, the greens committee happy. You've got to have a well-stocked shop. You've got to be able to teach. It's a tough, tough thing to do that. They certainly get my respect for doing that. Mm. But so I have you down as an early adopter to technology, though. Is is that right? Um, yeah, I suppose so. Certainly, as far as Trackman's concerned, our um, many many years ago, uh, one of our previous range owners was involved in the Trackman company from the very early onset. So 
I was made aware of it when it very first came out into the market four models ago. We're up to Trackman 4 now. So uh, as you know, Trackman's obviously a radar system that tracks the golf ball in flight and then will tell you all the ins and outs of it. So I got involved in that really early on just because I felt not only would it help my understanding of the golf swing, which it really has, it's probably been the biggest influence on, on what shaped my coaching career, but also for the student to help them see, well, you know, the, the ball, you'll be familiar with this, that ball curving 30 yards to the right. Now you can actually see why it's doing it, what's causing it. Now you've got to try and change it. And are those changes making a difference? I, I, I love using technology because I think it makes the coach slightly more accountable for what he's doing. If I'm telling you to do something, mm. maybe a grip change or we're changing where the club face is and it's not changing those numbers on track, man, and the ball flight's not changing, then it, it's for me then to go down a different road and, and try and get you get you fixed another way. I'm a big fan of technology. I, I remember, I can't uh, remember the, the coach that I heard say it when he said about technology and is it hurting the game? So we don't drive to work in a horse and cart anymore. You know, you jump in your car and you drive there. So there's, there's evolution in all weights and, and golf's getting that. Golf's, I, I think a bit like cycling is quite heavy on the technology side of it. Mm with the various sort of analyzers and things you can look at with regard to your golf swing, with your cycling, your input and your output and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I think technology, if, if you're a young coach, you need to get involved with that as soon as you can. I mean, the, the Trackman University is a phenomenal learning portal for I mean, golfers as well. Just understand why the ball's doing what the ball's doing. Because effectively, you know, in, in the first part, we would sort of, let's go down that, that, that discussion around, you know, what are Sort of top few things you can focus in on just to help your immediate game right now. But like you said, that mm. if there's the golf swing is a collection of what is it? Not not adaptations, but like uh, you know, there is like a hundred different things you can do to actually make the ball go straight or sort of you know yeah. draw slightly. And you know, there's a there's a hundred different tricks in the book as to how you can make that happen, but it's the track man that actually tells you exactly what is going on, and not compensations was the word I was looking at. A hundred different compensations to actually get one thing actually happening, and and if you can just eliminate a few of those little compensations, I think that's where you can end up having a better understanding, right? Or correct me if I'm wrong. No, for sure. No, you're you're on the money. The track man measures impact. It doesn't tell you where you are at the top of the back swing it doesn't tell you where you are halfway down within reason it tells you what's happening at impact when that club hits the ball and that's essentially where it matters that's where the the the, the you know the, the tire hits the road type of scenario so that's the piece you want to get right so i could show you on track man if you can picture in your head let's say jim furick as an example who has what would be perceived as a quirky golf swing if you can picture how the arms look at the top of the swing and then we can compare that to, let's say, Justin Rose's swing, who aesthetically is more pleasing to the eye, yet an impact that both returning the club back to the ball, it's pointing in the direction they want to hit it. And I think Furek is something like number four in the all-time money list, something like a crazy amount, $75 million. I might be wrong, don't, don't tell me, but I don't think I'm far off that sort of number. So a golf swing that looks like only his mother could love is absolutely hitting some shots, and he's you can't argue with his record. So... Trackman's great. It, it tells you so much more. It, if you like, video is kind of the 2D and Trackman is the 3D. So video will tell you how it's looking, but Trackman's going to tell you what it's doing. So 
Yeah, that, that's, I think, why now you're seeing certainly more of the younger guys coming out on tour. Matt Wolf is another guy who someone says is a quirky-looking swing, but he's been brought up in his Trackman generation where he's probably focused more on his numbers than making sure he hits certain lines on videos. So I think in that regard, you're going to see more players coming out like that who are more concerned about you know, two or three specific uh, metrics on a track man rather than, well, at the top of the backswing, you know, I want to be sort of on this line or on that line type of scenario. Yeah, for sure. Uh, cool. And it's good to see it on the tally all the time now, pretty much, too, you know, so you can actually see where the, where the drive is actually going. <laughs> yeah, correct. So we have on the driving range, obviously, at Beverly Park and on many ranges now, play, uh, places have installed Top Tracer, which is a lot of the technology you see. So if you're watching the golf this morning from Abu Dhabi, the guys are hitting the driver, the trace, the, the shot trace was telling you where the ball's going. And it's telling you things like the carry, the player's ball speed, the apex, that's the, the ball at its highest point off the ground. Now, you can see that, and now golfers understand what those metrics mean because they've maybe been to a range where they've hit golf balls or they've taken a lesson with some sort of technology. So, yeah, it's all, I think, making golf certainly more accessible to more people and, and definitely more interesting, certainly in this sort of computer generation that we have. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I really aligned with was that um, weight scale that you actually have in the floor. Yeah. I don't know exactly your percentage or and how far you're leaning back, how, how far you're moving forward and all that. And so that's like a, a, that other third dimension you're talking about, right? Yeah, the, the pressure map, absolutely. Um the, the ground reaction forces and how a golfer uses the ground is massively, massively important. And that's, again, something you can't really see looking at, at it on a video. We will tend to say and see on a video a player's weight shift, but you won't see what we would term as pressure shift. Um, I can see one of the guys on the, on the um, chat this morning, Lee Cox, is Joe Miller's coach, the long drive guy. And Lee's fantastic. He'd be great to have on here and help you and just how the feet are working into the ground. Um, but the guys who are hitting that a long way are really utilizing the floor. There's a great video I see this morning online of Bryson hitting a shot. I actually scribbled it down. So I think his ball speed was 211, something like that, which is just crazy off the charts. But the feet are literally jumping off the ground is using the ground that much. Uh, Lee would be able to tell if I've got those numbers wrong, but he's uh, really utilizing how the floor is working. And that's, again, a way of looking under the bonnet, if you like, and what, why does... Uh, maybe not Bryson because he's obviously worked on the on the mass as well as the acceleration, if you like. He's obviously bulked up a lot. But if you look at someone uh, like a Ricky Fowler, for example, or Rory, who you'd look at and think, OK, well, I might fancy my chances arm wrestling him. But then the guys are hitting it so far. So what are they doing? Well, they're utilizing how they use the ground. And that's only something that can be measured by using a force plate. There's many out there now on the market. Um, and, and you can then see exactly how the player's utilising the ground. But look, let's let's cover that because I did sort of promise a few little pointers to help people out. And I know one of the things that you hate doing is that thing where you have like, uh, you know, say Tiger in this frame and then me in this frame sort of comparing the swings, you know. I think that's like a let's, – let's step away from us punters trying to be professionals for a period of time and give us maybe three things that – are the key sort of scoring uh, assistants or hacks, I guess we could call it. You want the pixie dust, don't you? You want the miracles that you're after? Yeah, no, I, th <laughs> I, think, 
I think we're all aware there is no miracle. <laughs> if there was, there'd be a lot of people out, even more out of work. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like that thing of um, whatever you do, don't three putt. Like you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great one. Stop three putting. Um, all right. Well, let, let's go through some stuff. I made a few notes. I, I think the first one, and, and if any of my students listen to this, they'll, they'll already know this. But unless you have your name written on your golf bag, stop aiming at the damn flag. The down flag. What do you mean by the flag? Sorry, the flag. The flag. The the flag stick. Sorry. Stop aiming at flags. Right. That's great. Just aim at the middle of the green. Ignore the flag. Okay. Okay. And that would account. I would suggest for shots. I would go as much as seventy yards and out. Seventy yards and further away. Just aim at the middle of the green. Stop aiming at the flag. Yeah. Just save you two shots straight away. Brilliant. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we're. That was easy. Next one. So many of you use, uh, do you have a Garmin? I can't remember if you use um, a rangefinder, a GPS watch, give you the distance to the greens. Yeah. Um, okay, so what, go ahead. I know, I, 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 I love that stuff, but I obviously don't play it enough to ever invest in it. So um, I normally rely on my mate who's standing next to me. Well, actually, okay. uh, and he's got one. I do use the crappy phone like uh, app as well, which is... Yeah, there's, there's many of those, and they're, they're still very useful. They'll give you a number, but the important thing when you're looking at the number is select a club that's going to hit the ball to the yardage at the back of the green. Nice. Okay, 84% of approach shots come up short. Okay. Okay, so the problem that you've got, and you're, I'm going to use you as a classic case, so you probably have a slightly fanciful idea of how far you hit the golf ball. <laughs> okay, based, based on that one shot you hit once, that flew 10 yards further than anything else. So you're probably in your head thinking you hit your seven, I, I don't know, 160 yards. Yeah. Right. On a good day, downwind, maybe once. And then, of course, it really goes about 145. And then if you miss hit it, you lose another 10 yards. So now actually seven is going 135, and you're playing to a flag that's 160. You're, you're front right bunker all day long. So just play to the yardage at the back of the green. And, and trust me, there's a lot less trouble beyond the flag or beyond the back of the green than there is at the front. Have a look next time you're on a golf course. Golf course architects put more bunkers at the front than the back for a reason. And there's that's that one hole in 50 where there is a lake over the back. Exactly. And, and honestly, if you play to the distance that's to the back of the green, you know, there's a really good chance if, you, if your 7-9 on its best day has gone 160, you're hardly now going to then hit it 170 and hit it 10 yards through the back. Yeah. So, yeah, um, try, try that. Stop aiming at flags. I think that's really important. And play to the yardage at the back of the green. That's massively important. Again, if you listen to some of the golf this morning, um, I can't remember now the, 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 the player. The caddy player conversation was great because he's got an approach shot into a green. And the caddy said, just aim at the TV tower. Guess where the TV tower is? It's in the center of the green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, his, that was his line. Just hit at the TV tower. Okay, got this. Hit at the TV tower. So um, I, I think just those two things alone would, would really help to start with. Um, get rid of your three wood. There's a little, <laughs> let's, let's go con- controversial, shall we? Let's upset a few people. Look yeah. out. That's the th- yeah, the, the three wood off the ground is probably one of the hardest shots to play. For the average golfer, whoever the average golfer is, but that three wood off the floor is just so difficult. Yeah. The thing's got about 15 degrees of loft. That's the angle on the club face. So your chances of getting it up and in the air are minimal. Get rid of the three wood, 
put in there something like an 18 or a 20 degree five wood essentially you'll still be able to hit it off the ground and you can use it off the tee as well if you so wish to um and again it's a little bit of a fallacy it's been proven by uh, a guy called dr mark Brody. he did a book called every shot counts phenomenal stuff if you never read it you must read it and basically the the premise of i'm going to hit my three wood here for more accuracy is is nonsense it's it's been disproven a million times just get the driver out and while away wow that's well controversial but good you know but it's all yeah. uh you know we'll try it i learned try it next time you're on the course hey try it next time you're on the course the hit hit driver more often the closer you can get that golf ball to the to the target sooner the better you're going to be Oh, great. I think because uh, I've learned the game back when uh, hybrid clubs weren't even invented, you know. Um, so yeah. I don't think I'll fully embrace the technology just yet. I do have one, yeah. but, uh, you know, um, I need to work on that. So that's a good point that you mentioned. So maybe if someone's thinking about the new golf seasons coming up and they may be looking at the set makeup for, again, I wish I could find out what the average golfer is, but we keep saying the average golfer, but you know, you, you'd be a good example of someone who doesn't play a great deal. Um, you know, your set really would be, a, let's say, a driver, a five wood, as I would call it, like an 18 degree club, and then a couple of hybrids in there, sort of a 21 and a 24 degree hybrid. Get rid of the three and the four iron, maybe even the five iron. They're just too difficult. Don't let your ego get in the way at this point. <laughs> That's so funny because I'm still a bit pissed off that. Uh, well, the recent set of irons I bought five years ago it didn't even come with a three iron. I mean, what, what the hell? Good. That, that's helped your game. That has. <laughs> but you're right. I think I need to actually, you know, get more hybrid action in there. But uh, yeah, but a, a friend of mine, Andrew Gosling from Melbourne, listening in, who's a, a, a teaching pro. Well, actually, he's now a fireman. But um, oh wow, it's diverse. Yeah. So we've gone international today. That's good. Um, no, good, good advice, but I bet you everyone then says to you, but I just love my three-wood, but, you know, um, but anyway, yeah. yeah. You know, if, if I was going to be, again, the average golfer's caddy for a day, before we get to the first tee, I'm losing his three-wood. Yeah. And we're going to get to the first, oh, Christ, I'm really sorry, I must have dropped it. I just helped you get no end. <laughs> yeah, it's just too difficult. For the one time in 20, you pull that shot off. The other 19 are just a train wreck. Well, that's good. Um, anything else you wrote down you want to share before? Well, we I think again, Every Shot Counts is a great book to read. Um, I would really recommend anyone who's not read that to, to get involved with some of that. Um, there's a great uh, website called Practical Golf, which is uh, done by a guy called John Sherman. And that's, again, a great resource. Just helps people understand um, – thinking a little more course management, course strategy, um, just helping people think around the course a little bit and, and lowering people's expectations. I think this is maybe a problem that we've got. Uh, important for people to understand that maybe these tour players, don't get me wrong, phenomenal, phenomenal golfers, but they're maybe not shooting 64 every time they tee it up like the majority of club golfers think they do. They certainly don't drive every ball in the fairway. They don't hit every green in regulation and they don't hold every putt from 10 feet. Um, they're very good, but I think players, sometimes club golfers, sometimes are so hard on themselves because their own expectations of what they think they should do are so high. I've had, again, students in my room will hit a seven iron and track men will say it's 14 feet right of the target. Phenomenal golf shot. 
and the student will be, God, I just, God, I've got to get better at this. And it's like, wow, you know, that's, I think 25 foot is something like the average distance to the hole from 140 yards on tour. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty good leave at 14 foot for a guy who plays 10 times a year. <laughs> so I think golfers' own expectations can really get in the way sometimes. I think one important one that always blew my mind when I first heard it is from eight feet. So from eight feet, uh, the average tour player holds out 50% of the time. Yeah, right. But again, from eight feet, the average tour player holds out 50% of the time. So that's not many. <laughs> He's holding out half. You, you know who is guilty of uh, creating a problem with this, though, is the TV coverage, because you don't see the 50% of this, right? You see the 50% again. Correct, because we're seeing the guy on Sunday. He's got a two-shot lead playing the best golf of his life, isn't it, around a golf course in 63 blows. Mm. Who wants to watch the poor guy on Friday evening who's missing the cut by 10, who's, who's on his way home? That's just not really good TV, is it? So you, you're right. It's slanted a little bit with the TV coverage to you're seeing the best 1% of the best 1% playing the best golf of their life at that stage. Yeah. But, that, but yeah, some of the expectations is important to get your head around. It, it does annoy me, that thing where, you know, if there's a two ball in the last group and then the, the second guy's gone way off the ball, boil. You just never see him. <laughs> correct. You just yeah, correct. No, no one wants to see bad shots. It's probably because you all see enough bad shots as it is. You, you don't want to see any more. But then, who wasn't delighted watching? And, and this would be a really good sort of if you could do a poll. If you remember in the Masters back in November when Tiger makes ten on the twelfth hole, I, I could hear golfers rejoicing around the world at watching him do that. <laughs> and if it can happen to. If he's not the best golfer in the world, he's he's the second best golfer. It depends if you're in Jack's camp or Tiger's camp. But if he can do it, you know, it's going to happen to everyone. What everyone forgets is he then birdied five of the next six holes. Yeah, well, I did see that. That's impressive. Uh, yeah, but I don't think, I don't necessarily think, did we get to see that on the TV or not? I don't know. Uh, it, it was shown, I think, in sort of in between various other shots. But, oh, yeah, they're not going to miss showing Tiger make a 10 because it, it never happens. He's probably never made a 10 in his golfing life. No, it was his first ever 10, I think I saw. Uh, yeah, probably. But then to make five five birdies in the next six is seriously impressive because the rest of us are now sulking. We're, we're, we're shooting goodness knows what from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're just, you know, the world hates me. I'm a terrible golfer. I'm an awful human being and I, I just want to go off this golf course. But he got it done. Well, thank you for bringing up Tiger, though. I did a bit of research before this thing. Um, yeah. Turns out I actually dug up um, Tiger Woods's X-ray because I didn't know this. I, as I just googled it this morning, uh, he's just had another microdiscectomy of his back. Um, yeah, but I, that's his fifth one, I think. Sorry, I think that's his fifth back surgery. Fifth back surgery. So I have the details of all that. We might as well talk about it now. I'll talk about it later, but. Um, he has had four microdiscectomies where they trim the disc and one, uh, what they call, a, uh, what was it, an anterior lumbar intervertebral fusion. So they put a plate uh, between his L5 vertebra and his sacrum and they fuse the movement at the, the, the lowest vertebra in his spine. Um, so uh, I posted that on the Cairo London that actually the story so you'll be able to see his actual x-ray um it's amazing what you can find on the internet but yeah, uh, yeah we should talk about um different challenges like the body has uh, sure. 
with, and then I'll go into a bit more detail as to why Tiger's back has done what it's done. So let me ask you first, then, if that wasn't Tiger and it was a man off the street and had gone through that amount of surgery and those various procedures, I mean, what sort of way of life would you expect that person to have? Would they operate normally? Yeah, it's it's a good question because there is... um, such a psychological factor in having that amount of uh, intervention, you know. Um, And I saw even a comment by Rory, who's, I think, good mates with Tiger. And Rory was like, you know, he's just commenting on on Tiger's fifth surgery and saying, look, no one wants to have anyone slice you open and do stuff to your back. Um, uh, You know, you'd always rather try and find another way. But obviously, Tiger has that sort of such, you know, fine degrees of expectations of what he wants his body to do and gets probably so annoyed with just any little nerve issue or any little thing where he is like, right, I can't tolerate this anymore. i got to go and get that sort of little irritation removed. Now, most people wouldn't have the luxury of going and having five surgeries, fine-tuning things. Um, But, uh, yeah, so you would expect most people to be hobbling around and having zero muscle strength as a result of having all these, it's not just the surgery, it's the, you know, they say it takes six to 12 months to recover from spinal fusion surgery, right? It takes three months plus to recover from these microdiscectomies. Um, in that time, you're just going to lose all your muscle function and strength and core strength in that time. So he must have rehabbed so hard to actually get himself back to being able to still do what he does and swing yeah. the golf the way that he does. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal what he's managed to do, really. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he wins the US Open on a broken leg, so I don't think anything's sort of beyond what he can what he can do. I'd, I'd imagine he's a pretty strong. Uh, strong-minded individual, that's for sure. Now, for that, I mean, I was interested in this. So the, the, the micro-discectomies is where they give a little slit in, the, in your back and they kind of yeah. rip things apart, get right deep down into the spine to where that intervertebral disc is, which is you've got the bone, you've got your L5 vertebra, your L4 vertebra at the base of the spine, and then the pad in between, right? So uh, those discs have a limit of tolerance with regards to compression and rotation right okay so you can imagine that um tiger uh, and, and this is what i was really interested in, is that not only are you sort of rotating through there but also the the modern golf swing um generates so much torque and pressure you also get a compressive force a muscular contraction force and a rotational force right and then you imagine you do that like thousands of times through the week over a 30-year period, um, uh, you know, there is a limit to what this tissue can handle. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that's, I think that's wear and tear of any sports person, isn't it? If you look along the years, injuries is always the one thing, isn't it, that seems to hold some of the greats back at various points of their career. Yet you look at someone like Federer, who my knowledge of tennis isn't great, but I don't think he's been blighted by many injuries, let's say, as Nadal has. Now, is it the style of playing that creates it? Is it just down to pure bad luck? It's um, Is it a change in a workout program? I don't know. I mean, I, I remember reading somewhere that the majority of times at a tour event, if you ask the tour player, they're carrying some sort of niggle, some sort of injury. 
maybe not right now at the very start of the season, but they're getting into it. The travelling, I, I guess it's all um, many different components all added together can create this this motion with the, with the back. But like you said, it's rotary, they're side bending, they're doing it a lot at speed. Uh, something's going to give, I guess, at some point. Um, and obviously his, his workouts are well chronicled, but I, I think that the guys nowadays have to do that to try and support the lower back, get as strong as they can to keep playing. Yeah, and, and that's what, um, you know, they're sort of saying, um, The I was reading this meta-analysis of all this research about golf and back pain, right? And they're sort of saying um, the asymmetrical pattern of the golf swing may lead to deterioration of the right lumbar spine around the L4-5 in right-handed golfers, right? So they've actually narrowed it down that more commonly you get that right-hand-sided lower lumbar spine um, yeah. isn't it? It's the rotation with the we we term it in golf as a little bit of side bend as you're coming into it and yeah yeah pressing to that right side right hand side doesn't it yeah um but yeah look so as I said going back the the fusion operation by the way with Tiger is done from the front so they slice you open in the front they open everything up and they pack you from move all of the gizzards out of the way and then start screwing in the plate to hold it in together, you know. Um, that is a pretty major operation. But he obviously pretty much probably eroded the function of his lumbar disc at L5 away to the point where he needed to, well, he took the opportunity or, or, or the option to get it all fused together. Um, so that is not a standard procedure by any length uh, of, uh, you know, or stretch of the imagination. Interesting. Mm. But, you know, he obviously was probably at the point where he'd, had, he'd already had uh, four microdiscectomies of that one disc, and he's like, well, well, three of them. So he's like, well, I, don't, I can't go for any more. Let's just try this out, you know. Um, so. Yeah, almost like a last-ditch last attempt to, to, to try and get a solution. Yeah. But anyway, um, let's look into some other stuff. So because um, – I think I mentioned, well, years ago I did the Level 1 TPI, uh, my TPI or Tightless Performance Institute training. Yeah. Which for anyone who doesn't know what my TPI is or it's the website mytpi.com, it was a developed by a chiropractor, uh, a guy called Greg Rose. And at the time when I did it, which was ages ago, it was Greg who took us through a weekend in, in uh, I was just outside of Amp. And there's a really nice collection of chiropractors. Well, actually, there weren't many chiropractors. There were mainly personal trainers and golf pros within the room. And we had this great weekend of learning about what your body should or shouldn't be able to do in order to swing the golf club better. Uh, so, like, are there any particular, like, biomechanical challenges that you see all the time that you just would love people to work through in a more efficient or a better way? Yeah, definitely. I think my my sort of highest percentage of student would be male golfer, 50 and over, um, working full time. I, I think the, the big issue that I see, I know other instructors have as well, certainly with male golfers, is, is tight hip flexors. That's a, that's a biggie, which is obviously from being in a, in a sitting down position too often, not getting up and stretching. So we then see because the hip flexors are tight, an inability to forward bend correctly in posture. So TPI would call it more of the, the, the C posture, if you like, which definitely we would notice that much more with male golfers than with female golfers. 
and it's just an inability to rotate the hips enough in the backswing whereby they can get more pressure into their right heel to get the hands and arms back and behind them enough to deliver the club back in on the inside. So anything that you can do that's going to just work on loosening up those hip flexors much better. I, I think I, I try and give guys a few little exercises to do before they maybe play. And I think some golfers would just be better off doing a quick five-minute stretch in the locker room than go and chip a few balls on the putting green uh, or chip some balls to the putting green or do a bit of putting for five minutes before they play just to get warmed up, give the golf muscles a chance so that they know exactly what they're about to go and do. But that, that's a biggie for me and having talked to other golf instructors as well. Yeah. No, the, it's, it's a good one you mentioned that because my favourite exercise to give people, whether they play golf or not, is called a uh, lunge with a twist, right? Yeah. Um, Let's show you. Here we go. You can almost see you. So you effectively, you just separate your legs. So my left foot is in front of my right foot, the classic lunge. I put my hands out in front of me and I lunge down, kind of drop down into the lunge and then twist away from the back leg. So the legs back, you twist away from that and then that gives you this massive stretch up through that right hip flexor. So left foot forward, right foot back, lunge and twist and you kind of just do that action where you kind of do that like 10 times this way um 10 times the other way and then if you're doing it in the gym uh you actually grab onto a kettlebell or a dumbbell and you actually add weight to that situation and then that weight um also works on strengthening your lumbars at the same time Uh, great great for god so i think if there's any exercise you do it's a great activator of all those muscles so that when you're in the locker room or even like on the on the first tee you can just easily do a few of those little lunge twisty things just to kind of like yeah. life into the lumbar spine and that's a really good one <laughs> so do that <laughs> yeah do that you're fine do that and stop aiming at flags there you go between us we just save people about five shots <laughs> absolutely um <laughs> Posture, it's really interesting you were talking about posture as well. Like chiropractors bang on about posture all the time, right? And uh, it's that computer posture, the seat, yeah. which is like the forward hunch thing, which is one yeah. of the things which the further forward your posture is like this is, the harder it is for you to actually get that rotation in your shoulder. And guess what you do at the top of the back swing? You actually get that rotation in your shoulder. Um, and I remember at the TPI, the one main screening thing they get everyone to do is the overhead squat, you know what I mean, where you just kind of go down, uh, put your hands above your head, onto your golf club or a pole and see if you can actually do that. Um, so, again, if uh, that tests your hip flexibility as well as your shoulder flexibility. So, Yeah, and I think that's where... As a, as a golf instructor going to the TPI class, it was really the first time this body swing connection, I'd really heard of this and how I maybe would have a student in mind who might be struggling to do a certain thing I'm asking them to do. And then suddenly with the help of the TPI stuff, you can see, well, there's really a good chance the guy is restricted in an area. So he just physically can't do what we're asking him to do. So that's where I quite like the, the whole body swing connection with the TPI stuff. And certainly the posture with the various C posture and then the S posture, which I think we've got trying to get people out of this look of being sort of very straight backed and it's sort of looking like so and people unable to breathe standing over the ball, trying to find that sort of middle ground. The end posture is, is really critical. So I think as well, I think with, with posture, 
that maybe too often, uh, I think this has been passed down through the years and, and golf's really bad for some really core information that gets handed down because someone's uncle wants to play golf in Scotland somewhere and this is sort of gospel. The idea of standing to the ball like you're about to sit onto a chair or onto a shooting stick type of thing, it's just wrong. So we need to get people away from that idea. You know, we need that forward bend from the hips. Let's get the chest facing down so the pressure is more through the arches of the feet. Mm. I think we have a problem when we tell players, well, you need to be on your toes because then we see everyone's pressure way out towards the toes and nearly tipping forward as if they were playing a shot where the ball is below the feet on the golf course. And we know what happens from there. It's exit stage right with that shot. So I think just working on that posture, really, really key. And the idea that the, the hinge is forward from the hips and, and that with the exercise you were saying would really help. Mm. So just the other thing, obviously I spend my day um, uh, looking at the spine made of four bones and, and literally it's just uh, one of the things that happens is that you get blockages of the spinal movement, right? And so that can be in the neck, it can be in that mid-thoracic area which then limits the shoulder, it can be in the lower lumbar spine and so that's obviously, you know, I think if you want to get and keep, and this is the thing, and so you only have one spine, you maybe want to maintain it and look after it for the rest of your life especially if you're doing a lot of, if you are playing a lot, it promotes that stiffness within certain pockets and getting it cleared out regularly at the Cairo is a good idea, you know. Hmm. Um, so, but then that leads into the Tiger Woods thing. So not just is there imbalance in the swing, but then if your pelvis becomes imbalanced, if you have a slight leg length discrepancy and there's a twist of the pelvis, that just walking around and load-bearing or sitting puts an uneven pressure on those lumbar discs over your normal activities, right, which then can over, you know, years uh, uneven wear on these discs and the increased chance of like a disc herniation type of thing. So to actually prevent that sort of stuff from happening, and I'm sure Tiger, I know he had a pile of Cairo anyway, but there's a there's a limitation of what you can actually, um, uh, you know, what your body can tolerate. But if you're not playing as much as Tiger, then pelvic alignment, getting everything relaxed, is a really great way to keep your body in good shape and keep your yeah. body free to be able to swing properly. Yeah, I think that's stuff that people can do indoors. We're all, we're all stuck inside at the minute. So I think anything that you can do that's going to help that area that, that we said about the tight hips, pelvis area, just get that working on that a little bit. You're going to see some difference with your golf game for sure. Yeah, and there's no end of this online stuff you can do for, you know, uh, virtual yoga or, uh, you know, Pilates stuff. And I'm sure there's a ton of, like, like cycling, there's probably a ton of Pilates golf out there and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. lots of golf-specific Pilates classes, yeah. Um, did you, because I see, uh, you know, let's give you a little bit of a plug about things as well. I, I, um, I went on to your, is it uh, Patron? Is that the? Yeah, so what, what? Patreon was just something I came up with because I wanted a place where I could basically put all of these crazy drills and things that pop into my head at various times so I could just collect the whole thing in one place. So I think on the now I've got over 200 videos of just various drills that I would use, say, in a lesson that I think is useful. It was more for me to catalogue everything. Um, and another fellow golf instructor suggested about maybe setting up a Patreon page, which I do. So I have a few students subscribe to that. So I'll put new content on there five to seven times a week with lots of instruction videos. Um, I'll get some interesting articles from the internet, maybe from various sources that I think are good to share with people. 
But it really just started as something for me just to catalogue all my different ideas more than anything else. It was never meant to be, a, if you like, a money spinner or anything like that. It's uh, many more use myself. <laughs> that's that's what I like the look of it, though, is is that, you know, it's, it is finally a um, template or a place that you can actually have a fair exchange with the people using it, right? Because uh, especially in lockdown life, you know, I guess the temptation, I know some of the yoga places or probably, no, I'm sure golf pros are just tempted to sort of put all their stuff on YouTube and just give it away for free, you know, and that's not actually helping you pay the bills. Uh, or, or, so uh, it seems like a great way for a fairly affordable thing just to kind of get some great stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So as you know, you're on my mail list, so I send out my monthly newsletter and on that I'll put a couple of instruction videos just to show people the kind of thing they would see if they were to join on Patreon. So, yeah, I, I'm not like you. I'm not sure people want to give away everything for free that they know. That, you know, this is all the knowledge that a person has has come at a cost to that individual. So I think there has to be some return on that. But I think it's also a good idea just to put a few things out there that people can see. And do they, do they like what they hear? They may think I'm talking nonsense. They wouldn't be the first. And they don't like that idea, great, that's, that's down to the individual. Some people maybe like what I've got to say and feel it's going to help the game and they find it interesting. And you know, golfers are quite a passionate lot, so they're, they're quite into the ins and outs of the golf swing and golf equipment and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed doing it. Mm. Oh, cool. And I did see that the TPI guys have gone all virtual now as well. So, um, you know, I think they're still charging quite a fee for their kind of like virtual thing where it's like... I think to do a level one, it's like 600 bucks for the precursor to then doing the one-day webinar, which then costs 300 bucks, you know. But it's like, um, you know, I, th I think at least you don't have to leave your comfort and lounge room to do it. Um, and then you could be certified as a level one TPI, chiromedical pro or personal trainer too, right? Absolutely. So I was the same as you. I travelled up to the Belfry when I did my uh, my level one class. So if you suddenly take away the cost of the travel, yeah, and something you can do at home, it certainly becomes a little more cost effective. So yeah. I think that's it. It's the way most of these educational courses are going to be going. I would imagine. Um, what's to stop them doing it all online? But yeah, the the, the fee is still stayed the same. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is not. It's phenomenal information. I did the the golf biomechanics level two class. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at maybe doing the. I think they do one called a power class, which I'm quite interested in doing. Which again is like you said, it's it's all online that kind of thing. So it's a good way of of utilising some time that we have right now. So I think once school season gets going and we eventually will get let back out again, you're going to be busy, busy. So it's a good opportunity to have a look at that. But I, I like the TPI stuff. I think, you know, some really good info out there and uh, they're, they're, again, willing to share and pass on stuff with uh, with others. Um, have you have you come across this whoop thing that I've been wearing for like a, a year? I have a few students who are wearing it, yeah. Because I haven't looked into it myself. Well, the, uh, uh, the guy who developed the actual heart rate variability, fancy heart rate monitor, basically, um, but it's, it's designed to sort of check your recovery and, and, and whether you over, overcook it one day and, and how much you recover from that. And he's pretty smart in the way that I'm sure, he, uh, I think Rory wears one and, uh, or, you know, a few of the golfers. Yeah, a lot of the players are wearing them, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the players are wearing them and uh, just to track their, making sure they're not overcooking themselves. But... Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think Rory was one of them and uh, listen to their podcast about what Rory and 
Justin Thomas is another advocate of it, I believe, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, from my perspective as a Cairo, I'm, I'm not backbone disc doctor. I'm like the, the neurological enhancer is what we're trying to do by getting the spine moving better, right? And so guess what heart rate variability is? It's actually a measure of what the nervous system uh, is doing, right? Um, yeah. And that's that thing where if the heart rate variability is like a metronome, boom, boom, you are not very good at adapting to your environment, right? Um, whereas uh, when it's sort of jumping around all over the place, like, you know, that is you you ready to go, ready to adapt to the environment that's there. And so, yeah. you know, I'm sure they're using it whereby, well, maybe I shouldn't hit a 1,000 balls today. I should back it off a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, and it measures quality of sleep as well, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I'm doing the dry January at the moment too, um, and I was a little disappointed it hasn't gone as as I didn't recover amazingly <laughs> by booze out completely, which it's it's not going to do good at the end of January where I'm like, well, that didn't work as well as I thought. I'm like, yeah, wagon. <laughs> but look, that's another way your tissue obviously doesn't recover very well uh, if you've had a big game or you've been practicing a lot, and then you hit the booze heavy every night, um, you lose a lot of the benefit of that um, performance you've done in the day. You know? so. Sure. Mm. Yeah, again, it's all, it's all helpful stuff. I think that's where golf's moving much more towards things like this now. Anything that's measurable, you know, don't, don't guess, just measure it. Yeah. So down to measuring quality of sleep. For these players, certainly tall players there, it's, it's all about the 1% stuff. It really is, and it's been talked about in other sports, but, you know, if they can give them that little edge and the quality of sleep's better or they know, right, I'm in a better place to hit balls today or I really shouldn't be hitting balls today, it, it, it's all useful, isn't it? Mm. So have you got uh, – we probably should wrap this up. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Um, no, no problem. Uh, I, as you say, not much else to do, um, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's been great – get into the ins and outs. I guess we only just briefly touched on a few different things, but hopefully people have found it useful. Um, yeah, hope so. And have you got any parting words with regards to where, well, do a plug. Where, where can people find you and uh, what, what do you think is going to happen? Are you, are you hoping that March the range will open up again or, or, or what do you think? Yeah, I suppose best case scenario is we're allowed to reopen. Golf can get going again early March. Um, I, I very much doubt anything will happen prior to that. So I, I think that's everyone's got their eyes on early March and hopefully we can we can get going then. Yeah. And so in, a, like, uh, in the meantime, uh, check out ianclarkgolf.com and on that there's that, that patron uh, video library that people can crawl through. Yeah. And um, and then when yeah in March hopefully they'll be able to find you down on the world of golf on the A3 New Malden. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to email me any questions, it's Ian at IanClarkGolf.co.uk. Um, I'm more than happy if you've got any questions, any of the stuff we talked about today. I can I can get straight back to you on that. But yeah, we just everyone's so keen to get back outside, especially when we've got a day like today and the sun's shining. It's uh, for a change, we can get out there and do try and play some golf. But yeah, no, it's just, we'll do. I know the government has to draw the line somewhere, but it, it seems like I think tennis and golf would be a couple of things you could probably get people yeah. out doing. But uh, anyway, 
It's a tricky one. What can you do? I'm sure if you allow if you allowed golfers and tennis people to play, then the fishermen would be upset and the, the bowling club would be annoyed. It's just uh, <laughs> it's just an old blanket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is like the whole thing. <laughs> cool. All right, mate. Thanks very much. Uh, I'll be down for actually get things sorted out by the way i'm very impressed that you've got your uh turbo watt bike uh spin bike in the background there oh uh, yeah yeah I'm, I'm on that every day are you good to uh, hear yeah, i like that that's uh, gives me gives me something to do and do you actually have a road bike or not no no that would mean going outside and getting cold and nah. uh, i'm quite happy on that it doesn't go anywhere it just stays there it's perfect it's just <laughs> the muscles and the heart ticking over good to see exactly yeah exactly all right, mate. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'll in this. See thing. you soon. Thanks. All right.